Some crimes are so heartbreaking or shocking that they earn the label crime of the century. But the stories that made headlines in decades past aren't necessarily remembered today. I'm Amber Hunt, a journalist and author. And in each episode of this show, I'll examine a case that's maybe lesser known today, but was huge when it happened. This is Crimes of the Centuries. There's been an enormous amount of research on certain serial killers from the 1970s and 80s. The era produced some of the most notorious murderers, men whose names are synonymous with death. Ted Bundy, John Wayne Gacy, David Berkowitz. But far less attention has been given to today's killer. And before I start, a warning. This one's rough. It's graphic, and it involves kidnapping and sexual assault and torture. It is still clearly an open wound for many people who will never forget the trail of bodies and blood. In late March 1988, a young man named Chris Bryson was hitchhiking near Kansas City when an older guy offered him a ride. Chris was 22 years old, well-built and good-looking. The ride giver was 39, a bit pudgy, with a thick mustache. He looked like anybody's uncle, generally benign, but with just a hint of a dark underbelly, like maybe he would offer to buy you booze when you weren't quite of age. Chris took the ride. No one heard from him for the next several days, but no one was worried about it either. He had, after all, been hitchhiking. He was on the road, traveling, and you don't keep a predictable schedule when you're relying on strangers. Then, around April 3rd, a ruckus exploded in a quiet Kansas City neighborhood. The hitchhiker had leaped from a second-story window of a home on Charlotte Street. Chris was naked, except for a dog collar around his neck, from which dangled a red leather leash. His eyes were red and swollen, His wrists and ankles bore deep, raw marks. He frantically screamed for help. A meter maid working the area called the police. When detectives arrived, Chris Bryson told them a harrowing story that would not only horrify the country, but it even changed the law. The homeowner of the Charlotte Street house was Bob Berdella, who used to have a booth at the old Westport flea market. Robert Berdella, owner of Bob's Bazaar Bazaar, that's bazaar like a marketplace, followed by bazaar, as in strange, which was a shop in the old Westport Flea Market. In Kansas City, in the Westport area, there's this place called the Old Westport Flea Market, and it is a restaurant and bar, but surrounded by dozens of flea market booths. This is Tom Jackman, who now works at the Washington Post, But back in the 80s, he was a reporter for the Kansas City Times. He co-wrote a book about this case called Rites of Burial. It's a big building. The restaurant is in the center, but along the perimeter are all these booths of people selling what you find at flea markets. Old clothes, old baseball cards, old furniture, old knickknacks. And Mr. Berdella had one of these booths. 
the Bazaar Bazaar sold some exotic fare, like unusual jewelry and beads, rare ornaments, and replica skulls. And that weekend, the NCAA basketball Final Four was being held in Kansas City, and he actually had four fake human skulls in the window of the flea market with a sign beneath it saying, The Final Four, as if sort of a joke. Police who interviewed Chris Bryson the night he escaped Bradella's house heard an unbelievable story. According to Chris, the man who had offered him a ride had kidnapped him, drugged him, and tortured him day in and day out since the pickup. He'd also been tied to a bed and repeatedly raped. Somehow, though, Chris had kept his cool. The pudgy man had told him that if he didn't fight, if he behaved, the ordeal would be more pleasant for him. If he did fight, he'd be tortured more. Specifically, he told him, quote, You did not choose to be here, but you are. For you to survive being here, and for you to, you know, make it, it could either be rough or it could be easy. If I grow to like you and to trust you, then I could do special things for you, such as buy you cigarettes, pick up a movie on the way home from work, and so forth. Don't try to fight me, or you'll just get more of what you had earlier. You see, what you got is nothing compared to what you can have. End of quote. At first, police thought Chris was full of it. This is probably a lover's quarrel, they figured. And someone calls Mr. Berdella at the flea market and says, hey, the police are at your house. I just thought you should know. Now, at that point, Bradella had a choice. Does he flee, get out of town while he can, or does he go and try to talk his way out of it? And previously, he had been questioned by the police, and he felt that he could talk his way out of this one, and so he decided to leave his flea market shop and go home and try to evade prosecution by smart-talking the cops. And the police said, well, someone claims that they have you know, escaped from your house and that you've held them captive. And Berdella said, well, what's his name? And the detective said, I didn't say it was a man. So then they asked him, can we go in and look inside your house? And Berdella said, no, I'd I'd really rather go back to work now. I'm going to head back. And they said, okay, we're going to get a search warrant, uh, which they did. When police entered, they found a dining room cluttered with boxes and papers and photographs. Some of those photographs showed young men tied to a bed in much the same way Chris had described. Some looked quite ill, emaciated. A couple looked dead. If there had been any lingering doubt that Chris had been telling the truth, the skull police found in a closet might have helped clear that up. When neighbors were asked about Berdella, they said a lot of the things you've heard neighbors say about creepy bad guys over the years. He was nice. He seemed friendly. All the usual stuff. He'd been born in 1949 in Cuyahoga Falls, Ohio. He was a junior, named after his dad, who worked as a dice setter for Ford Motor Company. His mother's name was Mary, and he had a brother seven years younger than he. Bradella's parents were deeply religious, so he was too when he was young, but sometime in his teens, he stopped going to church. Some accounts suggest that the elder Robert was abusive to both his sons, but it seems his namesake got the worst of it. 
Berdella wasn't interested in or very good at sports, and he spent a lot of his time alone. Around puberty, he realized he was gay, though he didn't tell anyone. His dad died of a heart attack on Christmas Day in 1965, while the family visited relatives for the holidays in Canton, Ohio. The obituary ran December 28th and described Berdella Sr. as a World War II vet who'd served in the Navy. Abusive or not, his dad's death weighed heavily on Berdella, who spent even more time alone painting and collecting stamps and coins. His mom remarried quickly, but if that move was meant to provide a sense of stability, it did not. Instead, Berdella just found it more upsetting. Berdella's early passion was art, so after he graduated from high school, he enrolled at the Kansas City Art Institute with a plan to eventually teach. But he was derailed when, in 1969, he was expelled from the school because, during a supposed art experiment, he killed a dog. That same year, he was arrested on drug charges, according to a brief I found in the Kansas City Times, a morning newspaper that folded in 1990. A few months later, he was arrested again on another drug charge. Now, Berdella's neighbors, of course, knew nothing of this. They just knew that this guy, Bob, had moved to the lower middle-class neighborhood about 16 years prior. The guy was nice enough, though eccentric and maybe a bit condescending, especially toward women or people he deemed undereducated and beneath him. So Berdella was very convinced of his own intelligence, and a lot of people who knew him felt that he was sort of condescending toward them in that he felt that he knew more, that he was just a smarter guy. But neighbors did notice one odd thing. They said he had a steady stream of young men coming into his house. One neighbor, Michael Calderon, spotted this, but Berdella had an explanation. He told Calderon that he was using his home as a halfway house for runaways. Troubled young men would come and go. It wasn't unusual for some to stay days or even weeks at a time. Calderon told an Associated Press reporter, I thought he was a father figure to those kids, and I got adjusted to the fact that there were boys at his house. If neighbors had paid closer attention, they might have noticed that far more men arrived than ever left. But who monitors their neighbors that closely? What they noticed more was that Berdella seemed very proactive when it came to crime prevention. He even lobbied for neighborhood watch signs and urged his neighbors to put up porch lights, according to an AP story in the days after his arrest. Calderon said, He led us to believe he was a nice guy, a leader in the community. Then neighbors learned what police discovered inside the Charlotte Street home and realized Berdella was nothing like they had thought. When police searched Robert Berdella's home after Chris Bryson's escape, the second-floor room Chris had said he'd been held in had a bed, as well as the ropes he'd said had been tied around his wrist. An electrical transformer was plugged into a wall, wires from which led to the bed. A metal tray, sort of like what you would see in a dentist's office, was filled with syringes, bottles of pills, medical swabs, and eye drops. Police found a long iron pipe, more rope and leather belts, and they noticed that some of the bedposts were worn down, as though they had been rubbed raw by someone struggling to pull free of them. The skull they found in the closet looked old. So did another discovered inside the home. Both were clean and maybe possibly looked like the type of thing Berdella might sell at his bazaar. But they found another one buried in the yard, and that one 
was clearly no replica. It was still actively decomposing. Hair and bits of flesh clung to it. In a hallway cupboard, officers found human vertebrae that bore saw marks. In two envelopes, they found several human teeth. A chainsaw discovered in the house had traces of human blood, flesh, and pubic hair stuck to its blade. They'd found a skull, they'd found vertebrae, and they'd found photos of people being tortured and murdered. Chris Bryson narrowly escaped this fate, and how he did so was pretty ingenious. He heard Berdella's threats and heeded them. When Berdella came in to assault him, he didn't fight, not when he knew he couldn't win. And when Berdella said he'd never let Chris leave his house, he didn't argue. He acquiesced, and by playing nice, he was drugged a little less enthusiastically than some of the men whose bones littered the yard and house. Chris quickly earned Berdella's trust. He convinced Berdella that his arms hurt too much tied overhead to the bed frame, so could he please have them tied in front of his body instead? Berdella said yes. He even managed to talk Berdella into leaving him a TV remote so he could while away his time alone with a little entertainment. Mr. Berdella left and went to work at his flea market shop. And so he's at the shop when the victim escapes. And the victim had actually asked to have the TV on and his hands untied so that he could watch the final four, which Berdella agreed to. And that's how the guy was able to escape with this final four ruse. Somehow, Berdella managed to make a crucial mistake. He left inside of the room a box of matches. Once Berdella left for work, Chris saw his opportunity and seized it. He lit a match and burned through the ropes around his wrists. Then he jumped from the window and hobbled down the street to find help. Berdella was arrested for what he'd done to Chris, but problem was, Chris had escaped. He survived. When a suspect isn't facing murder charges, they're often eligible for bond. Investigators were sure they would soon be uncovering other victims, and they didn't want to give Berdella a chance to run. So they convinced prosecutors to charge him with everything they could muster in Chris's case, multiple counts of sodomy, felonious restraint, assault. By doing that, they got his bond up to $500,000, which at least meant it would take some effort for him to raise the money. That bought cops time to search. As many disturbing discoveries as police made searching Berdella's home, they never found a proper body. To be sure, they found enough to convince them that at least one person had been killed there. But the puzzle was incomplete. Some of the pieces they found flat out didn't fit. For example, they found animal bones in the yard and a white metal box filled with bird feathers. It was odd, to say the least, and it began to fuel speculation that maybe Berdella wasn't just another John Wayne Gacy having his way with young men. Maybe he was a Satanist. At least, that's what Geraldo Rivera thought. For a small amount of money, these kids go anywhere to do anything with anyone. Unfortunately, some went home with Berdella, whose involvement with devil worship was easily apparent. There was, for example, a satanic symbol on the outside wall of his house. His business card seemed straight from hell, and he ran this macabre shop of horrors, possibly stocking it with his own unique hobby. That was from an episode of Geraldo's talk show that ran from 1987 to 1998. He's actually wrong about all of this. Nothing ever came to light suggesting Berdella actually worshipped the devil. 
He was creepy and macabre, sure, but this was just one of a whole slew of cases falsely linked to the big red guy below in the wave of satanic panic that swept America in the 80s and 90s. The incomplete set of clues that police found at Berdella's house might have worried investigators at first, but then they found journals. It turned out Berdella really liked to write about the torture he inflicted and the murders he committed. When he drugged someone, he would even notate the substance used and the quantity. That's how officials learned that he had brutally killed six young men. Now, police said they were journals, but later in an interview with a reporter, Berdella clarified. So what is your complaint with the police calling these detailed diaries? (laughs) By your evaluation, does this look methodical? Doesn't look methodical. Meticulous? It looks a little sloppy. (laughs) They are not the bound in Corinthian leather written on parchment diaries that the media apparently tries to describe them as. You hear him laughing there? Laughing because he didn't like the wording police chose to describe his death logs? I hate this guy. Anyway, whatever you want to call them, these notes gave the cops names and dates, and when they looked up the names, they found that the men attached to them had gone missing around the dates Bradella noted. Jackman recalls, He used a Polaroid camera to take pictures of them. He wrote notes of what he did to them, how he injected them with drugs, or he injected them with Drano into their vocal cords to try to keep them from yelling. And he documented all six murders. One name on Berdella's list was Gerald Howell. Jerry was 19 years old when he disappeared on July 5th, 1984. Jerry's dad was a man named Paul Howell who, like Bradella, ran a booth at the Westport Flea Market. Paul had five kids, three sons and two daughters. At least two of the sons had met Bradella at one point or another. One of the older kids sized Bradella up as a weirdo. So when Jerry started chatting with him, the older brother warned him, hey, something's wrong with that guy, steer clear of him. But Jerry didn't. Jerry confided in Berdella that he'd started dabbling in sex work, which Berdella tried to warn him against. In a roundabout way, Berdella had even alerted Jerry's dad, Paul, to the hustling, causing friction between the father and son. Soon, Jerry and Berdella apparently started a casual sexual relationship that lasted a few months. They knew each other well enough that when Jerry was arrested on a minor charge, he asked Berdella to bail him out. That debt was apparently hanging over his head when Berdella offered him a ride July 5th. Now, Jerry's was not one of those disappearances that went unnoticed for a few weeks or even a few days. The day after he went missing, he was supposed to go to a Michael Jackson concert. His friends and family knew there was no way he would miss that show voluntarily. Berdella had been the last person seen with him, so police naturally interviewed him. But he said he had dropped the kid off at a 7-Eleven store on Main Street, and police found no evidence linking him to anything unsavory, and nothing came of it. Jerry Howell's father, Paul Howell, knew that Jerry hung out with Berdella, and he knew that Jerry got marijuana from Berdella. And so when his son disappeared in 1984, he immediately suspected Berdella of being involved and got the police looking 
at Berdella. Paul Howell went through Berdella's trash. He followed Berdella. He always thought that Berdella had killed his son, but he didn't have any proof of it until four years later when photos of Jerry Howell turned up in Berdella's possession. Berdella had not only jotted down Jerry's name and detailed his fate, but he'd also clipped and saved newspaper stories about his disappearance. Next in Berdella's string of victims was Robert Sheldon, then Mark Wallace, then James Ferris, then Todd Stoops. Finally, there was Larry Pearson. This was a gigantic sensation in Kansas City. I mean, just nonstop coverage of this because we had one victim alive and then not sure how many victims there were who might be dead. The police had found literally hundreds of Polaroid photos of different men in different positions of torture or death and pages and pages of notes seeming to to detail how Berdella tortured his victims. But they didn't have it all, you know, it wasn't laid out for them. And they didn't know who was who and who was missing and who these guys were in the pictures. By this time in American murder history, six murder victims was, sadly, no record. It would seem Berdella was overshadowed by some of the more prolific killers. Sure, he's had a few books written about him, including Jack Mins, which I referenced in this research. But honestly, I'd never heard of Berdella before. And that's pretty surprising, because even if his tally wasn't as hefty, his methods were among the most disturbing I've ever heard. Bob Berdella was known as the Kansas City Butcher because he chopped up his victims and left them in the trash. For decades, he's been a dark chapter in Kansas City's past. Those journals detailed excruciating torture. He apparently wanted to be able to relive every detail as fully as possible, so he wrote it all down. Eventually, he got to relive it all on the stand, too. This creature managed to do one decent thing, which was to plead guilty. Of course, the move was self-serving. Berdella's plea was in exchange for his life. Prosecutors agreed to take the death penalty off the table if he named names and spilled details. So he did, and the details spilled were hauntingly graphic. This next section is based on what Berdella said on the stand and what he told police and reporters. We'll start with his motivation. Sometime in the mid-1960s, Berdella saw a movie called The Collector. Get out of the way. Please, don't oblige me to use force again. I demand to be released at once! It's no good shouting. You can't be heard. And anyway, it's never anyone to hear. I don't know who you think I am. If you think that I'm somebody's rich daughter and you're going to get a huge ransom, you've got a shot coming. I know a lot about you. More than you think. Based on a British novel with the same name... The movie was a compelling, dramatic thriller about a shy, unassuming man who liked to collect butterflies. Deciding one day to expand his collection to include a woman played by Samantha Egger. The movie made quite a splash. Egger was nominated for a Best Actress Oscar. On the Golden Globe circuit, she won. She also won Cannes, as did her creepy male co-star Terrence Stamp. In the movie, Stamp plays Freddy, a wannabe entomologist who begins stalking Miranda, a beautiful young art student in London. He captures her by drugging her with chloroform and keeps her trapped in a cellar. 
He tells Miranda he's not after her for money or sex, as she first assumes. Rather, he says he's watched her a long time and, gosh darn it, he's in love with her. If she'd only give him a chance, he's sure she would love him back. Spoiler alert, that doesn't happen. Bradella was captivated by the movie. There was so much for him to relate to. He was a collector, not of butterflies, but of stamps and coins. He was awkward and shy, and he had trouble approaching people he might wish to know romantically. But Freddie doesn't strap Miranda to a transformer and send electric shocks through her body for kicks. That's just one small difference. When Bradella saw the collector, he would have been an impressionable teenager. It would be maybe five or so years before he moved to his Charlotte Street house, which later would be called a house of horrors in a Chicago Tribune headline. As Jackman said, Bradella did what he did. It was because he wanted total control. He enjoyed having total control over another human being. No one saw this coming. And sure, in hindsight, you can point to the animal cruelty allegations or the drug arrests. Berdella didn't cross over into kidnapping and murder until 1984, the year he turned 35. That's the year he snatched Jerry Howell. Their encounter set the stage for Berdella's modus operandi. He would offer them food and he would put powdered tranquilizer in a peanut butter sandwich or in a drink and knock them out. He'd put a high dose in and they'd fall unconscious. Then he would drag them upstairs to his bed, tie them to the four corner posts of the bed, and begin torture. Jerry endured repeated assaults before he died July 6th, apparently asphyxiating due to the gagging and the drugging. Bradella decided it best to rid himself of the body, but he decided that it'd be smart first to empty the body of its blood. Bradella had for a spell worked as a cook, and he tapped that experience. He dragged Jerry's corpse to the basement where the young man was hanged upside down like a cow or a pig and drained. He was hanging as such in one of the photographs Bradella shot and saved in a dresser drawer. After the blood was drained, Bradella had to dispose of the body. He had these two huge chow-chow dogs, and he had these big bags of dog food. And those are, you know, reinforced paper. And so he would wrap the body parts in the dog food bags and then put those inside of trash bags and on Monday morning put them out with the trash. And all that evidence is gone. That he did all of this in that boring-looking house on Charlotte Street was unfathomable. He lived in a pretty urban neighborhood. The houses are pretty close to each other, and the people on either side of him had no idea that people were being killed inside. Now, Berdella had met Jerry through Jerry's dad, but a lot of the young men he encountered really were troubled, and some of them really did stay at his house. That's how he met most of his victims. It was really quite diabolical. He also knew that there was a certain strip in Kansas City where male prostitutes operated, and there were also some bars down there. And so he was able to meet guys and get them to come back to his house. Everyone knew Berdella as the guy who had at-risk young men in and out, night and day. Some were on probation, some were hooked on drugs and had been kicked out of their homes. Between that and the work Berdella did starting a neighborhood watch group, 
Berdella got to know some of the cops. They'd come around now and then and check up on one kid or another. They'd also hear rumors. Berdella was the kind of guy who would take calls in the middle of the night to give someone a ride and then entice them to hang around by offering them booze and drugs. He would get to know these guys who would come to his house either to smoke weed or buy weed or to use a ketamine or acepromazine, which are animal tranquilizers. At one point, a pair of detectives actually thought about trying to sidle up to him through an informant who happened to be a hustler who partied with Berdella before. Not a chance, the hustler said. The word on the street is he does bad things to kids. The cops eventually gave up on the idea and then lost interest in Berdella altogether. And the body count grew. Robert Sheldon was a 23-year-old man from Arlita, California, who had met Berdella in 1983 through a friend named Freddie Kellogg. On April 10th, Robert showed up at Berdella's house, hoping to crash for a few days. Berdella was kind of getting tired of him, so he decided to remove the inconvenience from his life. He decided to keep Robert and began taking detailed notes about what happened next. When Robert fell asleep that night, Berdella injected him several times with tranquilizers. Robert didn't respond to the needle pricks, or the drugs for that matter. A few minutes after one shot, he was up and walking around, complaining about a pain in his back, like he'd been poked or something. This caused Berdella to rethink his plan to capture him. He even took him to urgent care for the sore muscles he complained about. The day after that, Berdella left Robert at home while he went to work, and when he got back, he found Robert drunk. Berdella rethought his rethinking. The capture was back on. With Robert, Berdella got a bit more creative with his torture. This will be the most graphic portion of this episode. Just know that many of the same things were done to subsequent victims, but I think hearing the details once is more than enough. So here it goes. Berdella injected drain cleaner into Robert's left eye. He made a note that Robert screamed for a minute or two. The idea, he said, was to impair Robert's vision and thus make him easier to keep and control. Later, he filled Robert's ears with caulk to further deaden his senses. He raped him repeatedly, at times using vegetables. He lugged a transformer into the room, attached the wires to two hypodermic needles in the back, and snapped it on for seconds at a time. One of the photos police found showed Robert, eyes wide in terror, body rigid from the electricity coursing through it. Berdella also used piano wire on Robert's hands, figuring that would cause permanent nerve damage, making Robert easier to control if Berdella ever decided to untie him. Because at that point, he wasn't planning on killing Robert. He'd caught him and he planned to keep him. But the plan changed when a worker came to fix his roof, and Berdella worried the guy would see his prisoner. So he wrapped a plastic bag around Robert's head, snapped a photo, then did some busy work around the house while Robert suffocated. Later, after he drained the blood and dismembered the body, Berdella took Robert's head and put it in the freezer. He told police he didn't know why he did that. After a few days, he skinned the head, then buried it in his yard. The rest of Robert went in the trash, just like Jerry. A few months later, Berdella met a young man named Mark Wallace. 
Mark wasn't troubled in the same way as Jerry and Robert. He was a high school dropout, but he wasn't a hustler or heavily into drugs. He met Berdella when he joined a friend to do some lawn work, and one of the lawns they mowed was the house on Charlotte Street. On June 22, 1985, Mark was walking after a night drinking when a storm started. He was near Bradella's house and remembered that the backyard tool shed was unlocked, so he ran there for shelter. Bradella's dog saw him, and when Bradella checked out the ruckus and found Mark huddled there, he invited him inside. Mark was never seen alive again. Bradella told police that the two men had chatted for a good hour, amicably. Mark told Bradella about his family, that his mother was out of the country, that his sisters didn't like having him around because he battled depression and could be a downer. Bradella didn't decide to capture him until after Mark fell asleep on his couch. He had no reason beyond opportunity, and his newfound knowledge that no family members would be looking for him for quite a while. Bradella had learned from Jerry Howell that loving family members could be a headache. Several of the families had lost contact with their sons and brothers, and so they didn't even know their guy was missing. So Bradella then carefully selected victims who would come to his house willingly. He didn't have to abduct anybody. Soon after Mark's capture, Bradella took a Polaroid of him, bound, gagged, and apparently drugged. His notes indicate that Mark fought like hell. Bradella would occasionally whack him in the head with a rubber mallet to cause a little disorientation. Then on June 23, 1985, Bradella went to check on Mark and found he wasn't breathing. He'd been gagged and tied face down to the bed, causing asphyxiation. Bradella met James Ferris, legal first name Walter, in September 1985 at a bar. Their first encounter was benign. One night, James showed up at Bradella's house drunk. Bradella saw the opportunity and pounced. He gave James some Valium, and then on top of that added sedatives to the dinner he served him. James passed out and was bound and gagged. The next day, he choked to death too. These cases are horrific, obviously, but if you can believe it, those first victims were comparatively lucky. Bradella's fifth victim was Todd Stoops. Todd had bounced around the Midwest a bit and had known Bradella for years. On June 17, 1986, he went to Charlotte Street after running into Bradella at a park. Todd thought they were grabbing lunch, but Bradella drugged him, tied him up, and held him captive for weeks. The torture is impossible to fathom. He ultimately died of blood loss and septic shock. He moderated the doses of drugs that he injected into them to keep them alive longer. Each one lived longer in his house than the one before. After Todd, Berdella went a year without killing anyone. Then came Larry Pearson. Larry had met Berdella at Bob's Bazaar Bazaar, where they talked about their mutual interest in magic and witchcraft. Larry had had a terrible childhood. One of seven children, he and his siblings had all been taken away from his mother and put into foster care. Larry had repeated run-ins with the law. After high school, he'd been sentenced to prison for robbery, and by the time he met Berdella, was wanted in Wichita for violating his parole. Larry and Berdella got along well, and it really did seem like Berdella was helping the guy. He gave him a place to crash a few times, and he even helped Larry get copies of his birth certificate and social security card, things that Larry would need if he ever wanted to get a proper job. 
At first, everything seemed fine. Larry stayed with Berdella and was a willing sex partner for weeks. Then, one night in August, Larry supposedly got a little bitey during oral sex, and Berdella did his usual thing. He snapped a photo of Larry wearing a dog collar, sitting in a bathtub, looking sadly at the camera. He ended up killing him the same way he'd killed Robert, suffocating him with a trash bag. I've searched through archives, and most of these kidnappings don't appear to have made much news. It seems Berdella had successfully chosen people whose disappearances wouldn't raise huge red flags. And yet, Kansas City police detectives had still been circling Berdella in a frustratingly Shakespearean way. Two of the disappearances had especially caught their attention. Jerry Howells, as mentioned earlier, was one of them. The Kansas City Star ran a Sunday story about Paul's search for his son. Paul was friendly with a detective who happened to be assigned the case, so the department put in more effort than they might have otherwise. And man, they got really close. Todd Stoops had actually told police that he had seen Jerry passed out at Berdella's house around the time Jerry disappeared, and it didn't look like he had gotten that way willingly. When Bertella was eventually arraigned, Paul Howell lost control and pounced on him, pummeling him. Officers arrested him, but he never faced charges. The other case that stood out was that of James Ferris, the fourth victim. James had a drug problem, but he wasn't some unattached transient. His wife, Bonnie, reported him missing and even said Bertella was the last person with him. A friend of her husband's told police that he'd once injected James with a sedative just to watch him fall. Police interviewed Berdella at the time and asked him about that. Sorry, Berdella said. Can't help you. James came around looking to crash, but I kicked him out. I haven't heard from him since. Police also asked about another rumor that they'd heard, that he liked to chain people to a wall in the basement for sexual torture. That was ridiculous, Berdella said, and he led them to his clean basement. He was less than cooperative when they asked to go upstairs, but at that point... They didn't have justification for a search warrant. They just had happenstance and suspicion. Until Chris Bryson jumped out that second-story window. Chris had been hitchhiking when Berdella pulled up in his copper Toyota Tercel. Berdella invited him to party, and Chris climbed into the car. He took him to Charlotte Street and invited him upstairs to the second floor to see some puppies his chow dog supposedly had just birthed. And who can resist newborn puppies? When Chris reached the top of the stairs, Bradella bashed him in the head with a two-foot-long iron pipe. Next came four days of torture and rape and all the rest we don't need to revisit. Suffice it to say that Chris was injured, but at least well enough to escape and run for his life. His mental well-being was far touchier than his physical. Eventually, after prepping to testify against Berdella and then not needing to because of the last-minute guilty plea, he changed his name, assumed a new identity, and moved to another state. Berdella's case never gained the widespread notoriety that some other serial killers obtained, and that's just fine. I don't want his victims forgotten but I'm kind of hoping I forget his name as soon as I'm done with this episode. Jackman has a theory as to why this case isn't as famous as some of the others. Even though the story made huge headlines, some of the details were kept under wraps for years. 
the gore, a lot of the detail I've spoken about today was not initially revealed. That didn't come out until I obtained the transcripts of his confession, uh, which was a couple of years later, which was greatly upsetting to him. He thought that the confessions were going to be forever confidential. Still, Berdella's case did make an impact in Missouri, and not just in a how-could-this-happen-in-our-backyard kind of way. The criminal case ended rather quickly, and then families of victims sued Berdella in civil cases. Some of his victims' families filed wrongful death civil suits, but those suits initially were dismissed because they hadn't been filed within three years of the victim's death, which was the statute of limitations. That ruling was appealed, and eventually, the State Court of Appeals overturned the decision, setting a new precedent. In the appellate ruling, the justices wrote that there was no way for the victims' families to file the suit until after Berdella's arrest because Berdella concealed the crimes. It's not like the families chose to wait. They didn't have proof that foul play had even happened. As such, the justices said, we can't let this stand or we're saying that all you have to do to avoid a wrongful death suit is hide your crimes successfully for three years and ta-da, you're off the hook. That ruling in Howell versus Murphy is still occasionally cited in Missouri legal briefs. Bradella made a few headlines in Kansas City over the next four years. He blamed the police for not catching him earlier, for not discouraging him from doing this. He blamed the media for our coverage of this. Everybody was at fault except him. One time, it was to complain that the info spread by police was unfair to him. He said in an interview with James C. McKinley, quote, They're portraying me as being non-human, and their motivation is the same as I treated my victims. They dehumanized me, and that is the same thing I did to my victims, treated them as play toys, play objects, end quote. Eventually, one of the civil suits went to trial, and Berdella lost. Big time. Betty Ann Haste, mother of Todd Stoops, was awarded $5 billion by a jury in what was believed to be the largest ever award in a wrongful death lawsuit. Now, Haste never expected to get the money, but it did give her standing to attack Bradella's trust and siphon off the money he did have. It made up for nothing, of course, but it at least assured the victim's families that he wasn't living comfortably in prison. That gave Bradella something new to complain about, but that was short-lived. Ten months later, in October 1992, he died of a heart attack at age 43. I used newspaper archives to research this story, saw photographs that will probably haunt me forever, and used the book I mentioned co-authored by Tom Jackman. The book, called Rites of Burial, was co-written with Troy Cole, the chief investigator on the case. Crimes of the Centuries is a production of the Obsessed Network. To learn more about its shows, go to obsessednetwork.com. This case was researched by me, Amber Hunt, and produced by Garrett Tiedemann. Original music is by Bruce Hunt and Andrew Higley. Other music comes from Blue Dot Sessions. If you like us, help us out by rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts. For more information or to recommend a case, go to centuriespod.com. On Instagram and Twitter, we're at Centuries Pod. And check out the Crimes of the Centuries podcast Facebook page. 